Welcome to Sunday Sermons and other recordings from the Unitarian Universalist Church of Davis, California. Please visit our website at www.uudavis.org for further information. for Congregational Life. And I'm Steve Burns, the worship associate for today. And we welcome you with these words that we've been hearing throughout the month of February. Welcome who come in friendship, who long for genuine community. May you be graciously received here as your authentic self. Welcome who come in curiosity, full of questions or simply open. May you embrace wonder and encounter new delights. Welcome who come heavy with fatigue, weary from the troubles of the world or the troubles of your life. May you rest and be filled in this sacred space. Welcome who come with joy, flowing like rivers, Come with joy of the gentle breezes for changing skies and great trees. May the grace of the world leave a lasting imprint on you. Welcome who come with thanks for the altruism of the earth and the gift of human care. May your grateful heart overflow and bless those around you. Come, let us celebrate together Together this this wondrous wondrous life. life. To begin our services, we do acknowledge all those joys and sorrows in our lives, and so we light two pillar candles to represent all that is being held in this room. One candle represents those sorrows, those moments that weigh heavy on our hearts, and the other is our joys, those celebrations in our lives. Our chalice lighting words today come from soul matters, the flame arising from us. We gather knowing that the light can't reconstitute itself. Without each other, the cold of winter finds us. Leaning on each other, trusting each other, challenging each other, only from this does the flame emerge. Today, may it rise again. So, if you did not read the bulletin this week, I have a pop quiz for you. There are three junior high schools in Davis that are named for Unitarians. What are they? Emerson. If you did not read the bulletin. Da Vinci, well, Da Vinci, we would like Da Vinci to be a Unitarian, but we, we claim a lot of people, but we can't quite get there. Homes, correct, homes, one more. Harper. Harper, yeah. So, let's learn about these folks. The first person, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who, who went to, who is currently at or went to Emerson? 
Anyone? All right, Lou, Ted, Alexander. Oh, my goodness. All right, Emerson, you guys could come teach this part. You want to? <laughs> Emerson was, uh, we, I, I, I try to find, some, some stories say he's fifth or seventh generation minister. So he comes from a long line of clergy people. His father converted one of the churches in Boston from being a congregational church to being a Unitarian church. He was served in the ministry for a few years, found it wasn't quite for him, and, uh, and found it founded or started the Transcendentalist Movement, which was known as a literary movement, if you learn about it in high school, but it was actually a religious one, and it was uh, Emerson and his Unitarian friends who were rejecting some of the intellectualism of the Boston Unitarians wanting to connect a little bit more with nature. And even though Emerson challenged the Unitarians, he, he really loved the faith, and he um, lived quite near the first parish of Concord, Massachusetts. There's that building still standing today, and he attended church most Sundays for his whole life. Concord, Massachusetts is not far outside of Boston. It is also, uh, uh, was, as I said, Emerson's home. You can visit his home. It's owned by a trust in his family's name. And the land that he owned went all the way to a little pond we know as Walden Pond. And his very good friend, Henry David Thoreau, built a little log cabin on his land and, of course, uh, started a whole... Um, literary philosophical movement uh, with his work of Walden. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Sr. Works out that it was senior. When I started this research in the fall, I thought it was junior. Junior uh, is pretty neat guy. He was on the Supreme Court Justice uh, Supreme Court for a long time. He was a justice. He made some decisions on the Supreme Court that maybe were not so in line with our values. Someday we'll do a sermon about him, but today we're talking about his dad, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. He uh, also lived in Boston. He was um, not born a Unitarian, but he was the son of a minister, a, a Congregationalist Calvinist minister. And as a young adult, he, he rebelled from his dad, and he discovered Unitarianism and, um, and found a, a great home in King's Chapel in Boston. He was a poet, a writer. He was also a physician and a professor for 40 years at Harvard in the medical school. But he also um, discovered some, uh, some joy in technology and science. And uh, do you know what a stereograph is? Did anyone go to Free Museum Day and go to the California History Museum like Eva and I did? So it's a, like a little wooden... Kind of looks like binoculars, like wooden binoculars, but you put a picture, and there are two pictures, and you look at it through the binoculars, and you get a 3D picture. Has anyone ever done that? Yeah, that is called the Holmes Stereograph, because he didn't quite invent it, but he figured out how to make it for the mass market, and he um, didn't patent it because he wanted it to be open for people to enjoy the technology of photography. So uh, here's King's Chapel, where he was a member, where he brought up his three children, including Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., that Supreme Court justice, and his grave is in the cemetery there in downtown Boston. Who is our third one? Harper. Francis Ellen Watkins Harper. Not from Boston. 
Uh, she was born in Baltimore in 1825. She was born a free woman uh, at a time of slavery for African Americans. She was a writer, a poet. In fact, she is known as the first African-American woman who made a living as a writer at the time. She also was an activist, and she uh, intersected a lot with Unitarians, and she grew up African Methodist Episcopal, uh, but she found a lot of convergence with the Unitarians, and eventually she joined the First Unitarian Church of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. That's the picture of that, um, also in downtown Philadelphia, and when she died, that's where her funeral was. And the picture that we saw is hanging in their um, social hall, which they call uh, the Harper Room. So thanks for learning a little bit, sharing your knowledge of Davis. And um, we did a little research. Marty West helped uh, figure out a little bit of the Harper stuff. Um, We don't know the whole story, but uh, because Rob and Daddle said, oh, just go to the archives and you could dig around for a while. And Steve and I thought, Maybe not. <laughs> so maybe maybe in Robin's re- retirement, she'll dig around and find out exactly how all these names came to be. But we know that Harper was the last one to be named, and they were looking for someone to represent a little bit more uh, diversity of thought and experience, and uh, but who was also a contemporary of Emerson and Holmes. And so that's how we got to be Unitarians here in Davis Junior Highs. So we'll sing our children and youth off to their programs, and we'll learn more. Barring any scheduling shuffles, this is my last worship associate reflection. Oh, thank you. It has been a rich journey working with all the ministers and also our diverse and interesting group of associates. Of the commitments that I've said yes to over the years, this one felt like the most selfish. Being able to study a particular question or issue and craft a meaningful message to convey has been a joy. When I heard Reverend Morgan reference our gray hymnal as the living tradition, a light bulb went on for me. My upbringing was Roman Catholic, even serving as an altar boy, but that religion soon wore off, and I see it as nearly ossified. Though the Catholics did pardon Galileo 350 years after his death. But our faith has been dynamic, responding to the times we are in, and and has taken impressive stances over the years. Our response to events and cultural revolutions was sometimes embraced by the entire association and other times by smaller groups of UU leaders. And while our actions and involvement were at times flawed, UUs were deeply involved in civil rights in the 1960s, with a number of UUs dying in the process. The UU Service Committee began during World War II and helped save many children from Nazi camps. Other areas of significant UU involvement included suffrage, LGBT rights, the Black Lives Matters movement, and today's immigration crisis. What helped my UU faith grow beyond the boundaries of this church was attending the 2007 General Assembly, the annual gathering of UUs in Portland. I had spent three years on the church board 
and was then president. It seemed time to learn more of the UU world and explore other available resources. There was a revelation experiencing worship with thousands of UUs, and I was deeply moved by the services and the music. Watching our association grapple with complicated problems and what the denominational response would be through the business sessions via participatory governance with thousands of delegates was also eye-opening. Though imperfect, the process appeared more effective and productive than in the case of state or national politics. Simply put, I found it fascinating and inspiring. In addition, the General Assembly has had an invited lecturer who over the years has included Martin Luther King, Linus Pauling, Marion Wright Edelman, Norman Lear, Julian Bond, Brian Stevenson, Van Jones, and many other luminaries. I have attended many General Assemblies since, but a highlight was Justice GA in Phoenix, where many of us from this church were also there. A conscious decision had been made to go ahead with the plans to hold GA there, despite national attention on the anti-immigrant actions of Sheriff Arpaio. But also the assembly was remade into one of action, with much of the usual business cut. <clears throat> Instead were rallies, protesting at the infamous tent city where detainees were held, and helping people fill out complicated immigration forms. Grateful relatives of the tent camp detainees came to thank us, and that was about 11 o'clock at night. And the nonstop arrival of our buses of protesters eventually overwhelmed the local and armed counter-protesters, who then drifted away. Our current UUA president, Reverend Susan Frederick Gray, was a prime mover in creating this Justice GA, forming deep partnerships with local groups already doing the work. I also got more involved with the denomination at the district level. Recruited by Ramon Urbano, I joined the Pacific Central District Board and eventually served two years as president. That work opened up the Boston UU world to me as district presidents met twice annually with national staff. I came to understand some of the struggles of trying to manage such a diverse and complicated organization and also to see how our faith evolved. Previously, I had seen our congregation deal with difficulty, the first being the negotiated resignation of our minister and then the aftermath of a stopped ministerial search. Each had inflamed emotions and caused disruption, but with long and careful discussion, we managed our way through. The district level also had some drama. Soon after I joined the board, we hired a new district executive who oversaw the operations of the 37 congregations in our district. But a year later, this position vastly changed as the UUA nationally was working to eliminate district structures. Helping make this change palatable was the equanimity of the person whose job had been radically restructured. As he took a step back and acknowledged that the multi-district model was an unwieldy system. Our region is one of the last to fully let go of districts, mostly due to the vast geography of the 13 western states in the western region. But change is afoot, and I feel is mostly positive. 
Looking back at district origins, it seemed a lack of trust contributed when the Unitarians and Universalists merged in the early 1960s. Neither wished to let go of their own structures, so an amalgamation of 19 U.S. districts arose, each with their own staff and central executive. And every congregation makes their own decisions and are relatively independent of any central control. Add to this the generally accepted notion that UUs are frequently suspicious of outside authority, and you can imagine how delicately the UU Association in Boston, our national governing body, must operate. But even in times of struggle and strife, we return to our covenants of how we work together and strive to assume the best intentions in each other. Change is never easy, but growth is essential for a living tradition. I am hopeful that we can continue to grow and improve both ourselves and our faith, which has given me many role models and heroes to study for guidance and hope. In these days, it is sometimes hard to hang on to hope, but an alternate world without hope is not one we would want. We are all part of this living tradition, and all of the words that we are singing today were written by Unitarians or Unitarian Universalists. And the tunes that Lou is sharing are sharing today, also written by Unitarian Universalists. This tradition is your tradition, and we are living in it now, and it is growing now. It has been and it is filled with preachers and poets, abolitionists, social justice workers, thinkers, and social movers. Our faith has been resilient through unjust laws, through wars, through changing beliefs and new discoveries. In the early 1800s in New England, it's nearly impossible to separate who was a full-fledged Unitarian, who was a friend of the Unitarians, who liked the Unitarians, etc., because honestly, Unitarians were everywhere. I know it's hard to imagine here, and it's hard to picture Boston, but I am going to ask you to imagine this. Boston, uh, across the river from the city of Boston is the city of Cambridge, and there's this place called Harvard University. It was founded in 1636, and it was uh, became one important center of American intellectualism. Clergy, doctors, lawyers were educated there and, and learned together. They were also the elite They were the upper class, the morally strict, the philanthropists of the time. They became known as the Boston Brahmins. Have you heard that phrase? Boston Brahmins, a term actually coined by Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. He wrote that phrase uh, in in the Atlantic Monthly and uh, uh, trying to compare those influential families in Boston, of which he and his wife were a part, to the highest caste system in the Hindu system, the, the Brahmin, the priestly caste. 
So Harvard is central to the Unitarian story, but so is Boston. In 1805, Harvard Divinity School appointed a Unitarian professor of divinity, and things kind of exploded. The Calvinists, the Congregationalists, got upset that the Unitarians were having too much influence at this very important institution, and they actually left, and they formed their own seminary, which someday I'll tell you that I ended up going to many, many years later. So, um, But the Unitarians stayed at Harvard, and their influence grew beyond the Divinity School into other parts of Harvard, into Boston, and into the surrounding areas. And soon we see nearly all of the congregations that were Congregationalists become Unitarian. And so if you travel through Massachusetts, every town has this beautiful little town green, and there's the first Unitarian church, and then across the green is the first Congregationalist church. To give a sense of the Unitarians in Boston, you can you just need to look still today about what exists. There are three historic churches that have thriving congregations within one mile of each other in downtown Boston. And then if you go out just five more miles, there are five more congregations. And then if you go within the Beltline in the metro area, there's another ten. And in fact, if you look for UU congregations on the UUA website in Massachusetts, you'll get 143 results. In, Ca- in California, 73. And yes, we have 30 million more people. 143 congregations, some of them only have seven people, but that's true in California too. But you can get a sense of this state filled with Unitarians and Boston central to it. And right on the path, if you're going to walk among those three historic congregations, you're going to walk right past the headquarters. Well, where the head, we just moved a few years ago to a different part of Boston. But right there, you walk from King's Chapel, you pass the Boston State House, the Massachusetts State House, and then right next door, it's the Unitarian Universalist headquarters, and then you continue on uh, to the other congregations. So one of those churches, that King's Chapel, is on the Freedom Trail. If anyone's ever been a tourist in Boston, you'll stop through some of these places. And that's where Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. found a spiritual home. He was indeed a Boston Brahmin. Both sides of his family were well established in New England, and his father, as I shared earlier, was a, earlier was a congregational minister. He was brought up in a house full of learning and books, and the story goes that they had a personal library of 2,000 books that the children would be encouraged to read to learn new things. Holmes went on to study at... Harvard, correct, focusing his studies on law and medicine, and then began writing poetry. That's when he's rejected his father's faith and found Unitarianism at King's Chapel. After marrying, he practiced medicine for a while before coming back to Harvard as a professor for nearly 40 years. Today, Holmes is mostly remembered for his works as a writer and a poet. He was the co-founder of the Atlantic Monthly and a regular contributor to that publication. Maybe some of you get that delivered. 
His poem, The Chambered Nautilus, is celebrated for its metaphor of the shell, the Nautilus shell as the human soul, and it's often taught in a high school English class. Here's a piece of that poem. Year after year beheld the silent toil that spread his lustrous coil. Still, as the spiral grew, he left the past year's dwelling for the new. Holmes gave voice to a world of finding meaning and finding the sacred in nature. He was really important in his time, well-respected, well-connected. He knew a lot of people, and his position at Harvard allowed him even more influence. He wrote more than 100 Unitarian hymns, and none of them are in our gray hymnal, the singing the living tradition, but the two previous versions of our hymnals called Hymns for the Spirit and Hymns for the Celebration of Life featured several of his hymns, but he is uh, very celebrated um, for that work at the time. One of the many folks that he kept company with was Ralph Waldo Emerson. Emerson was indeed a Boston Brahmin too. So of those three historic churches, the uh, that King's Chapel, and then there's First Church, which is the church that Emerson's father brought from being Congregationalist to Unitarian. Emerson, like I shared, followed ministry for just a little while, and then it really wasn't for him. He resigned from his pulpit, and he uh, said it was over the controversy of serving communion, that he and his congregation had different ideas about what, what that right meant. But really, it wasn't right for his temperament. He became an essayist, a lecturer, and the public intellectual known today by nearly every high school student. Transcendentalism is taught as this literary movement, and most people read some of Emerson. He was a very dense writer, so uh, you have to really sit with his reflections. In 1838, he returned to Harvard to the graduating class at the Divinity School, and he gave this famous speech, which is now known as the Divinity School Address. But it was a critical moment in Unitarianism because it changed us forever. It stirred debate, and as the, the library archive at Harvard explains, he proposed a counterweight to formal religion, not atheism, but a personal religious consciousness and self-reliance, believing that a divine nature is present in all persons. Emerson's address was seen as an attack on the Unitarians, and it was an attack on the Unitarians, because of that formal religion, because of their intellectual focus, that Harvard focus. But Emerson changed us forever, believing, again, that divine nature is present in all persons, something that we resonate with a lot today. He was a radical at that time. He was denounced by a lot of folks, including some Unitarians, but one of the graduating ministers in that class was Theodore Parker, who in his own way went on to change Unitarianism and indeed the world. 
but we'll have to save him for another sermon. Emerson was not invited back to Harvard for a while after stirring up so much controversy, and instead he focused his efforts on discovering this divine nature and what we now know as transcendentalism. One writer on the subject says these thinkers felt that the way to social reform was through individually perfected persons combining to create an improved culture. For Emerson, being a transparent eyeball meant that there was no intermediary between himself and God. Cultivating his self-reliant intuition allowed him to discern the wondrous nature of life and to see the inherent worth and dignity of all people. So we start to see how this thinking is alive and well in our living tradition today. Within a decade, the Unitarians who had, uh, there were Emerson, and across the street from Emerson, by the way, also lived a little family known as the Alcott family. Louisa May wrote a big book. Um, And uh, they left Unitarianism as well and focused on transcendentalism. And then within a decade or two, they all kind of came back to Unitarianism, and Unitarians embraced the transcendentalist movement. Emerson had redefined for most people the idea of God. He redefined this personal God to what he called the oversoul. He saw this as a unifying force of energy, a structure in all things. Today we see this influence, this this movement that inspired so many people to personal reflection at a time that where we were really focused on intellectualism, on academic pursuits, on science and things like photography, all sorts of new discoveries that were taking people away from themselves. The transcendentalist movement then with that focus on self-culture and moral growth and the good of all people added energy to the abolition and anti-slavery movement. That movement was widely supported by Unitarians, and Emerson himself was an abolitionist and spoke several times on the subject. In 1850, the Fugitive Slave Act was signed, and Emerson made a public speech against it, I'm going to give you a little aside here, because the Fugitive Slave Act was signed by President Millard Fillmore, and he was a Unitarian. So our history is complex. We'll also save that for another sermon. So Emerson is speaking against the Fugitive Slave Act, and he says this, and excuse me for the man, him, blah, blah, blah. Um, he really means all people, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay in his gendered language. This is a law which every one of you will break on the earliest occasion, a law which no man can obey or abet without loss of his self-respect and forfeiture of the name of gentlemen. Just now, the supreme public duty of all thinking men is to assert freedom. Go where it is threatened and say, I am from it, and do not wish to live in the world a moment longer than it exists. 
He also spoke in Boston on behalf of John Brown at a fundraiser for the for John Brown, the man who attempted a raid at the Federal Armory of Harper's Ferry. Do we remember this story? This raid was uh, in support of a hoped-for armed slave revolt. Emerson was speaking to raise funds for his for John Brown's family while John Brown faced trial and then later was executed. And John Brown is the intersection where we meet Francis Ellen Watkins Harper. Harper, again, not a Boston Brahmin. She was African-American, born free in Baltimore. She was a, a writer. I shared that with you, a poet. She earned a living as a writer. She was also an activist and a leader, and she would interact with others at the time, including Susan B. Anthony, Sojourner Truth, Frederick Douglass, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. In 1858, she was part of an organized uh, protest where she refused to give up her seat or ride in the colored section of the segregated streetcar in Philadelphia 100 years before the organized protest of Rosa Parks. After that, she started going on a lecturing tour, and during that time, she became quite ill and was nervous uh, about her death, although she recovered fine, and she wrote one of her most famous poems called Bury Me in a Free Land, the last stanza of that poem. I ask no monument, proud and high, to attest the gaze of the passers-by, all that my yearning spirit craves is bury me not in a land of slaves. That stanza of the poem is inscribed on the wall at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History in Washington, D.C. She was a dedicated abolitionist, and she supported John Brown's family uh, during his trial and during his execution. Harper joined John Brown's wife, Mary, at the home of Lucretia Mott, who was a Quaker in Philadelphia uh, during that time, and supported her and thought about ways that the family um, might continue to uh, work together with the abolitionist movement. Francis Harper wrote a letter to John Brown while he was in, uh, in prison, and she got it smuggled in. And here is from the letter. In the name of the young girl sold from the warm clasp of her mother's arms to the clutches of a libertine, in the name of the slave mother, her heart rocked to and fro by the agony of her mournful separations, I thank you that you have been brave enough to reach out your hands to the crushed and blighted of my race. After the Civil War and the abolition of slavery, Harper turned her writing and social justice work towards women's rights and to the temperance movement. And every time I talk about the temperance movement, I want to make sure people know that this was not about not drinking alcohol. It was much more about the ways that women were often 
experienced domestic violence at the hands of men who drank too much. And so the temperance movement and the women's rights movement were very much intertwined in the 19th century. In 1866, Harper gave a moving speech before the National Women's Rights Convention demanding equal rights for all, including black women. She said, we are all bound up together in one great bundle of humanity, and society cannot trample on the weakest and feeblest of its members without receiving the curse in its own soul. She challenged women like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who did not support the 15th Amendment, which gave black men the right to vote, and they didn't support it because they thought it should include women. So the women's rights movement sometimes had some conflict with the, often had some conflict with the racial rights movement. But Harper stayed true to herself and and publicly disagreed with these major leaders of the women's rights movement. In 1870, she joined the First Unitarian Church of Philadelphia with her daughter. She stayed involved in her AME background, but she found a lot of support and friendship, especially in the justice work at the Unitarian Church. While in Philadelphia, she organized and empowered black women to act collectively for the social good, and she also mentored other black female writers and journalists and helped organize the National Association of Colored Women in 1894 with Harriet Tubman and Ida B. Wells. She was a really important person, a really important figure, and part of our history. When she died in 1911, her funeral was at the First Unitarian Church, or the Unitarian Church of Philadelphia, and she is buried in Philadelphia's African American Eden Cemetery. In 1992, African American Unitarian Universalists installed a new headstone uh, at her grave and inscribed it with that stanza of the verse from Bury, Bury Me in a Free Land. Holmes. Emerson Harper, three of our religious ancestors whose resilience of faith inspired many in their lifetimes and beyond. In this living tradition, it is every person who comes through our doors, in and out of every church, every person who shares with their neighbor, talks about their beliefs and their values. Our living tradition is every person who is influenced by others sharing who they are. They come to church and they do the work of personal reflection, of spiritual growth, and they do the work of turning our society towards justice. Today, we use their stories, their words, and their examples to inspire our own work, our own experience of our living tradition. And it is a rich tradition. I invite you now into a time of reflection and prayer. You might find your feet solidly on the ground. Take a breath and notice the way your body is 
interconnected and how it moves with every other living being. We sit in this time grateful for the people, the heroes of our past who have taught us and challenged us, whose examples we follow and who we rebel against. We're grateful for a moment to look inward, to notice the places we have learned of ourselves. The places we know we are not quite our best. And we try a day at a time to do it differently. We're grateful for this time to look inward and celebrate ourselves too knowing that our unique contributions to this world will be celebrated for generations. There are so many people who we are connected to, so many people who need us, and so we send our love, our hopes, our dreams, our encouragement to the people we know who need it. We all know people who are struggling struggling with addiction or mental health, struggling with a physical illness. We all know people who are dying. And so we send our love to them that they might share our hope and our confidence and our love. And we extend all of that to other people, other communities around us, that we might influence, that we might share our values, share our work towards justice, and transform the world around us. We live in precious balance on this earth, this earth that is in crisis, and we come together to find hope and renewal an inspiration for another day. Now let us sit in a moment of silence to each in our own ways, name the joys and sorrows of our being. And now I'd like to invite uh, Ellie Norris to come forward. She's going to share just one little story about the ways that she is experiencing deepening connections in the church community. Just one little story? (laughs) Um, When I was asked to speak, um, as I recall, it was about community and my experience of community here. And I don't remember making the connection with stewardship at that time. But, of course, it's the heart of stewardship of why I give to this church. So here's a, one little story <laughs> of my sense of community. Um, it was Beth who asked me to make these comments, and it happened to be on the first Sunday that the Sparklers met to sing together. We know, you know, we were all invited to come, uh, whoever wanted to, just uh, drop in kind of thing to sing, practice, 
And then in two weeks after that, we would come and sing together in front of you all. If you go online to look at the bulletin online, there's a picture that was taken when we were singing. And um, so I said, yeah, I, I know right away what I would say about community. There's something about singing together mm. that makes me feel a part of community. And that, what was the phrase you said, the living faith? Living tradition. The hymnal? That's the name of the hymnal. The, the living tradition, the hymnal, singing. And I was so invigorated by that experience of being with, as it, I guess we're 50 of us or so, the room was jam-packed. And we were all having fun and singing. And Allison, of course, is such a marvelous director. And Lou was playing the piano. And I was invigorated. And I thought, this is community. And that's really one of the... There are many reasons for belonging to this church. But being a part of a community is certainly one of them. And it makes it very worthwhile for me to give my money. I want to keep it going. So there's my little story. Thank you, Ellie. <laughs> that was an amazing little story. We come to the end of our worship service and we extinguish the chalice with words from Oliver Wendell Holmes. But first we extinguish our pillar candles, hoping that the Sorrows held among us have been lightened by being shared here and that the joys have been brightened. Sun of our life, thy quickening ray sheds on our path the glow of day. Star of our hope, thy softened light cheers the long watches of the night. Please join hands or shoulders for our benediction. Hear these words from Ralph Waldo Emerson. A more secret, sweet, and overpowering beauty appears to people when their hearts and minds open to the sentiment of virtue. Hear these words from Francis Harper. Let me make the songs for the weary amid life's fever and fret till hearts shall relax their tension and careworn brows forget. May this congregation say amen.